Welcome to Wealthy Behavior, talking money and wealth with Heritage Financial, the podcast that digs into topics, strategies, and behaviors that help busy, successful people build and protect their personal wealth. I'm your host, Sammy Azuz, the president of Heritage Financial, a Boston-based wealth management firm working with business owners, executives, and retirees for longer than 25 years. Now let's talk about the wealthy behaviors that are key to a rich life. Welcome to a bonus episode of the Wealthy Behavior Podcast. I'm your host, Sammy Azuz. And from time to time, our Chief Investment Officer, Bob Weiss, are going to sit down and talk about something going on in the investment world that's particularly timely, interesting, uh, or on an individual investor's minds right now. And today, we're going to talk about the so-called FANG stocks, Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Netflix, Google, Stocks that a lot of people pay attention to because they're the mega cap growth companies that we use every day. They had a strong stretch of absolutely crushing the market really between 2016 and late last year, earning on average more than double the market returns. And because of that, uh, because of the attention that they got and the performance that they've had, they've become a big part of portfolios, either because investors loaded up on them by buying them individually in their brokerage accounts, or they're just naturally a, a big part of a lot of mutual funds and ETFs. But lately, it's been a different story. This year, they're underperforming the market. And for some, it's quite ugly. Netflix is down about 70%. Facebook, which is really now meta, down almost 40%. Amazon, down 25%. So, Bob, you know, when you look at these names, what jumps out at you? Yeah, so a couple of things. They are great companies to start. Um, or they're household names and good companies, um, for the most part, quite profitable. As far as investing and looking at stocks, there's two problems. Uh, one is valuations, and that's uh, taking care of itself. Um, as you said, Sammy, Netflix, which was the most expensive one, being down 70%, that's a way to fix your valuation. Um, you may not recoup that, though, too quickly. So, so that's kind of a permanent fix. But a different problem is size, and you can basically only get so big. So some of these companies, you know, like Facebook, started off small and now they basically dominate the world in, in their market. And it, it's tough to keep growing from there. So when you unpack that a little bit and talk about valuations, you're, you know, explain that a little bit to the average investor, what their valuations are, maybe not necessarily, you know, stock by stock, but just in general, how much more expensive they are than the market and, and how you're measuring that. Yeah, so a common way to look at valuations is the price to earnings ratio. And there, there were times not, not too long ago when Netflix, as an example, traded at over 100 times earnings. So that means you're paying over $100 for a dollar of earnings. And that, that just doesn't make sense. It's not sustainable unless you think that that dollar is going to grow to two to four to eight to $16. And then it starts to make sense. And oh, eventually Netflix, um, th their growth rates slow down. And investors said, you know what, I think 20 times earnings closer to the market average is about what a company like that should go for because they have competition. Look at all the options you have in streaming services today like Disney. And all of a sudden it, it switched from this high growth stock that, that's uh, you know, going to be, you know, we're going to spend all of our time on Netflix in the future to just another company that, that has to trade along with fundamentals like the rest of the market does. So that's a big part of this. And it's kind of the, the thesis for these stocks and for growth stocks in, in general is basically, I know they're extremely expensive, but I'm willing to pay a lot for them because basically they're going to take over the world or they're a slice of the world. And 
you're willing to, to pay astronomical earnings because you think basically eventually Netflix is going to be the number one content king in town and j- just using them as an example. And then when they disappoint, the market gets really frustrated. The thesis you know, breaks and they get into the penalty box for a while. And basically Netflix, I think they just said they lost subscribers, maybe for the first time, 200,000 subscribers with what you're talking about. There's so many different streaming options. So um, the, the stock sold off. And, and, and that's, I think, a typical thing with, with growth investing. It's great until the market gets disappointed or starts to see signals that you're not going to continue to grow at this phenomenal rate that they've been really overpaying for. Yeah, that's exactly right. And there are winners and losers in the FANG. So you take the FANG acronym. Netflix has always been the smallest of the bunch. Um, right now, their market cap's around $90 billion. Apple's close to $2.7 trillion. So Apple's 30 times the size of Netflix. It was a hot stock. Now that it's down 70%, I'd make the case that, that Netflix should probably be booted from the FANG acronym. Um, you know, I, I recently heard, I think Jim Cramer said that the new name should be the Mama Stocks. And he's taking, uh, what is it, Meta, Apple, Microsoft, that, that got left out from the very beginning. You know, poor Microsoft, that they're a big tech company, have been the largest and never made it because it doesn't cutely fit in FANG. And then you've got um, Alphabet, not Google anymore, and Apple. So, you know, it, the acronym can shift around, um, but over time, it just shows how markets change, companies change. Yeah, absolutely. And I was looking at that kind of disappointment of earnings. I know Amazon came out recently with disappointing earnings. The stock got hit harder. I don't think Apple has disappointed as, as much. I think it's holding up a little bit better. And I know Facebook or, or Meta, uh, which is such still such a goofy name transition, but um, they were hurting last year, I think, with the Apple iOS change that uh, to kind of security that they felt was going to hurt their revenue. But today, um, or I think yesterday, they came out with earnings that were um, a positive surprise. And so the market responded well. So a, a lot of it is a reaction to the, to the growth rate, to the expectations. That's on the valuation side. Um, you talked about something else, though, which is, I, I think, don't, I don't want to gloss over, which is basically, look, at some point, you're just so big, you're not going to be able to maintain that growth rate, whether or not people you know, love the trajectory that you've been on. Yeah. So with size, there's two things. There's the business can only get so big, the economy is only so big, and then the stock market. Um, you can only be such a, a big part of the stock market. So taking the first point, uh, if you look at Facebook, um, in their earnings that came out this week, they said they had these numbers um, you know, boggle my mind every time I hear them. About 263 million active monthly users in the U.S. and Canada. 263 million. The population of the U.S. and Canada is about 368 million. So <laughs> something like two-thirds of the population of the U.S. and Canada is on Facebook monthly. And you have to be 13 years old to be on Facebook. So you take out that demographic. You know, my wife's 99-year-old great aunt, I can tell you, isn't on Facebook. So when you adjust for people who are actively connected to technology, there's only so much more room to grow. And I think ad revenue was down so uh, per user. So you've kind of got there. They were not smaller, but they've, they've climbed the mountain. They, they have all the users. And it's how do you grow from there? Well, maybe that's where Meta comes in and Mark Zuckerberg's trying to invent a whole new world as the, the next avenue of growth for Facebook. 
Yeah, and I think they pick up a lot of new users uh, from the Instagram acquisition. But again, that becomes uh, you know mature, and it, it's I mean it's worth pointing out. I think Facebook or Meta makes ten billion dollars a quarter or something like that. So it's a phenomenal business. But if the market has been paying a lot for that uh, share of of earnings and and is overpaying for it and just doesn't think that the growth rate will be there, um, they're they're going to take a hit, which is which is what we're seeing. So. When you contrast that, Bob, with another style of investing that I think you and I are a little bit more comfortable with, which is taking a value-based approach to, to portfolio management, how does how maybe using some of these stocks as an example or a different stock, how, how does that look and, and why are both kind of important to, to bake into a, a portfolio? Yeah, it's it just continuing on with the, the Facebook meta example. Um, that stock's down trading around 15 times earnings now which is that that's actually a little cheap, cheaper than the market. So when you think of it that way as a value investor, okay, they're trading at 15 times earnings, market cap, I think it's around 500 billion. They're buying back about 30 billion in shares. So I think it works out to six to 7% of their shares they're buying back each year. Right away, that, that's a pretty good return to investors. So you're able to, to start to do the math and find it from a bottom up fundamental standpoint, a, good investment when they're you know, trading at 30 plus times earnings and not buying back shares. It, it's, it's expensive, but it's gone from expensive growth stock. So you lose 50% and all of a sudden it's a value stock and it starts to look attractive based on the, the amount of cash that they're earning. That pivot can take a while though, right? I mean, I remember, I mean, it's not, I don't know if this is enough to draw conclusions from because it's one investment environment, but the tech names that were the darlings in the late 90s, early 2000s, um, the ones that survived and were good businesses like a Microsoft um, were eventually cheap or much cheaper, but there wasn't this immediate switch where investors gravitated toward them because now they're value stocks. I feel like investors were frustrated at the fall from the kind of growth rates and it took a long time. It was, I think it was dead money for a long time before some of those profitable technology companies started to become considered cheap enough to, to attract investor attention uh, under a so-called value approach. Yeah, th these things definitely take time to sort out. And with investing, what, what's kind of frustrating for value investors is there's a lot more to invest in than valuations. And a big part of it is emotions, human behavior, and um, when, when you see something like investors who have owned Facebook, owned Facebook, or I'll stop talking about Facebook, say these tech stocks that have gone down a lot, you, you have frequently what's mo called momentum or trend following. And, you know, people throw in the towel like, ah, oh, this thing stinks or I've made enough money and they sell. And that, that process takes time until it's no longer the, the fang stocks, the place you want to be as a contrarian, a contrarian, it'll turn to these stocks, they're dead, you know, pessimism. I don't want to touch those, those things that, you know, they had their run and it's over. That's when you might want to start to look at them. And I don't think we're there yet. Yeah. I did want you to touch on that, that basically, you know, we've seen in some of the managers we work with believe in this, that basically there's not this immediate switch. You get a sell off and all of a sudden people are excited and they jump back in and, and you start to recoup your money. When things sell off, they, they tend to, 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 to go in that direction for, for longer than, than you would think. And, and when things are going up, they tend to go in that direction for longer than you think. There, there is momentum. I don't know whether it's because people initially underreact to the news and then eventually overreact to it, which is one theory, but um, it, it does take time for, for that to shake out once you start moving in that direction. 
right? Exactly. Yeah, you, you don't go from expensive to fair value back to expensive. You, you do overshoot um, generally with all assets and you might be getting moderately attractive now, but um, definitely some more things to shake out with those companies. So this is why you've seen basically the NASDAQ um, and large cap growth in the U.S. struggle more than the overall market this year and, and value because these names were just such a big part of those constituent indices? Yeah, that, that's definitely a big part of it. I looked at a composite of the uh, FANG stocks, and I think they're down about 35 to 40% from the peak last November, and the S&P is down about 7%. And if you adjust for them being 20 plus percent or so of the S&P, the math works out almost to S&P companies, ex-FANGs are flat, while the FANGs are down 35% or so since November. Can you explain how that works a little bit? I think people might find that maybe uh, new information or, or helpful information when you look at the index, when you look at the market, if, if you think you're a passive investor in the S&P 500, what you end up happening, what ends up happening is as these stocks do well, you end up owning a lot more than them and, and maybe getting a little bit more concentrated in one area. So explain a little bit about how the S&P is, is built and how market cap changes can, can kind of distort the allocation. So lots of that question. I'll, I'll try and... Right. Uh, Sorry about that. <laughs> well, uh, so, so S&P 500, it's, it's an index. It's called, it's market cap weighted. So the larger the company, the larger the position. So if you have a company that's a trillion dollars, trillion dollar market cap, so market cap, share price, time shares outstanding. One company is a trillion dollars. One company is a hundred billion dollars. You'll have 10x weight in the trillion dollar company over the $100 billion company. So as companies um, go up in price, they become more expensive. As they become more expensive, they become a larger portion of the index. So when you look at these FANG stocks, now that they've performed so well over the last few years, they're a big portion of the index. So uh, it, it's about 20% of the S&P is in these handful of companies. And uh, looking at the, the largest one, it's Apple. So Apple is 7% of the S&P 500, and it's had phenomenal returns, um, $2.7 trillion market cap. But if you buy an S&P 500 index fund, you're putting 7% of your money in Apple. So that's just a little bit of how they work. Does that make sense, Sammy? Any questions on that? No, no, absolutely. That makes sense. And I think that's why it's relevant to investors, whether they realize it or not. If you, know, if you're, if you own index funds, if you own ETFs, if you own target date funds in your 401k, um, you're going to have a very healthy amount, maybe too healthy, uh, if that's a, a term that makes sense, uh, of exposure uh, to these names. So um, paying attention to them, even though you may get them through a commingled vehicle and understanding what's going on with them uh, is important. Yeah, and that, that's where diversification is key. Um, and we look at at it, not just in U.S. equities. Some people might say S&P 500 and done, I'm getting 500 stocks. But when we invest across market cap in the U.S., so large companies, mid companies, small companies, tilt towards value, but then also invest overseas, international markets, emerging markets, at real estate, broad real assets, you get a broadly diversified portfolio and you end up with the FANG stocks in there, but a much lower weight than 7%. So you should own them, but there's a lot of other good assets in the world to own. I know we don't do individual stocks. We, we definitely have a more diversified approach, but are there thing stocks that concern you more than others or that you find you know more attractive than others? 
So I, I guess I have probably hit the concerning ones, Netflix um, in particular. Amazon's looks expensive as I just anchor in on valuations. So on the, the positive side, um, you know, Facebook valuation is starting to get better. And, and Apple's an interesting one. Apple does trade at a premium to the market, but that company has held in there. They're making a ton of cash, raising their dividend. And it, you never know. It, it's been hard to bet against Apple. And, you know, maybe in the future we are, you know, in our autonomous driving Apple car, <laughs> wearing our Apple glasses while we're on our Apple phone, buying products from the Apple app and they're making money in every which way. And if that happens, they'll, they'll keep doing quite well, but um, you never know. I never would have expected them to dominate the smartphone market the way they do today if you look back 10 years ago. Well, I know in particular, you're one of the last guys I knew who had a Galaxy phone. So when I text you, I get this ugly green text message uh, notification on my screen. So you held out for a while. I, I mean, Apple, I think, makes me uh, feel a little bit more comfortable as well. The, you know, the investment legend himself, Buffett, um, he's a big shareholder in Apple. And I think that has propelled, um, you know, Berkshire's returns. Um, the, the other thing, I, I, and I agree with you on Netflix, um, it, it's almost like how much streaming can you consume? At, at some point, people were just sick of their cable bill and they wanted to unbundle everything and they just wanted everything separate. And, you know, you get Netflix, it's interesting, it's unique. I used to get it back in the DVDs in the mail day. Um, and then now all of a sudden I'm tallying up all I'm paying for these different streaming services. I'm like, what the heck, just give me my cable bill back and put all those channels on there. So you'd have to assume with all that competition, it, 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 would, it would hurt them. I guess one other thing kind of connected to that, if you are going to invest in individual stocks, which which we don't, and I probably don't recommend it um, as a you know do-it-yourself investor, but you look at a company like Disney that's sold off kind of maybe in sympathy with Netflix's streaming concerns. Disney has a lot of things going for it besides just Disney+. Plus. So if you are looking at your portfolio, if you are looking at businesses, you do want to make sure that you're not bailing out on a Disney, which is a much different value proposition just because you're seeing some challenges in, in, in a Netflix. Absolutely. That's just where diversification works. Um, having the, the broader lines of business, um, you know, helps a company like Disney, whereas Netflix is all in on streaming. And, you know, one thing with, with markets and economics is it's competitive. There's a lot of people out there, a lot of companies trying to make money. And if you're at the top of the hill in streaming, other companies are going to go after you and, and compete. And if you're all in on something like streaming as Netflix, you know, that, that, that can catch up to you over time. So what would you say now, and let's say, I mean, we talk to potential new investors all the time. And what if your next meeting was with somebody who had a concentrated position in these fang names and they said to you, you know, Bob, what, what do I do? I don't want to sell now that they've sold off, but I also know I own too much of them. What would we be telling somebody like that? Yeah, I think now we actually have some good data and you can point to what happened to Netflix down 70%, what happened to Facebook down 50%. And th that's what happens with single stock risk. When you invest, you're taking risk. When you take risk, you want to get a return. So if you think about, say, investing in the S&P 500 index fund, you're taking what's called market risk. And with market risk, you get market return. If you take 500 people, we all line up and we all take one company in the S&P 500. Collectively, we're all taking more risk. Collectively, we're all going to get the same return. So that's just the math of diversification. 
So that's just the direction, making sure that they're aware that they're taking higher risk, that on average, it's not compensated risk. So it's not risk you want to take. And, and that's why you should cut the position to the extent you can pay some taxes um, and get other assets in the portfolio. Yeah. And with them having outperformed for so long, I think I said from like 2016 through uh, 2021, um, and then the struggles this year, I think a Netflix and a Facebook, and I refuse to call it Meta, sorry, are basically now their trailing returns are not that impressive. Their longer term return, they've given back a lot of that, almost all of that outperformance, if I'm, if I remember correctly. Yeah, no, definitely. That I mean, that's how the math works. You have to do well for a while to, to sustain a 70% drawdown and still look good. So, you know, a lot of these companies and investments, you, you see it where they'll just be hot and run and run and run. And you wonder when's this thing going to come back down to earth. And when it does, it can be painful for investors and you can give up years of gains pretty quickly. And that, that's what some people have unfortunately seen in these stocks. Awesome, Bob. This has been a great conversation. Interesting to me always to talk to you about these and, and hopefully uh, our listeners did as well. Um, if I can ask you, what are you thinking about from an investment standpoint these days? What's on your desk? I know you're not you know, sitting around thinking about the FANG stocks day in and day out, but what is on your mind? What, what are you concerned about? What are you looking at with the markets? Well, the big topic these days is inflation. Um, seeing the inflation print over 8% last month, that, that's high. And it, you know, Powell was so dovish last year, you know, talking about transitory inflation and, and that, that's coming back to bite the Fed. And it's just hoping that they can slow things down, get inflation back to a moderate pace. You hear the phrase soft landing. That's what we're looking to see. So um, that plays into the bond market and you know, seeing the losses in the bond market this year, the bonds down about 9%. If you're just looking at the general ag, um, that, that's really where it focuses. What's going on in bonds? What's going on with inflation, Fed policy? And that drives a lot of this. So uh, you know, we start talking about the exciting FANG stocks and these big tech companies, and maybe we're ending with me talking about something that most people call pretty boring about interest rates, Fed policy, and the bond market. But I think that's what's most important these days. That drives stuff. Yeah. And the ag is the bar cap ag. That's a, uh, a pretty commonly used index to track U.S. bonds. Um, you, you talked about a soft landing. As I think about that, what does that actually mean? If the Fed is talking about raising rates eight to 10 times or whatever the market's expecting, isn't that already kind of off the table that you can have a soft landing if you're raising rates that significantly? No, not necessarily. So basically the economy's hot and inflation's high. The Fed wants to slow things down, you know, have higher mortgage rates, slow down the housing market that people can relate to. And by increasing rates, you do that. The trick, the key is to not send us into a recession. So can you slow the economy down just the right pace? Hence the soft landing. So we still have economic growth. Unemployment doesn't tick up too high, but we're not seeing 8% inflation anymore. So that, that, that's the balance that they need to do to get inflation down without sending us into recession. Understood. Well, thanks a lot, Bob. I appreciate the conversation and thank you all for listening today. Thanks, family. Thank you for listening to Wealthy Behavior. If you found the conversation useful, please consider leaving us a review wherever you listen to your podcast and sharing this episode so those around you can live a rich life too. For more insights, subscribe to our weekly blog at heritagefinancial.net and follow Heritage Financial on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Check out my personal finance blog at thebostonadvisor.com. This educational podcast is brought to you by Heritage Financial Services, LLC, located in the greater Boston area. 
The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are that of the speaker, are subject to change, and do not constitute investment advice or a recommendation regarding any specific product or security. There is no guarantee that any investment or strategy discussed will be successful or will achieve any particular level of results. Investing involves risks, including the potential loss of principal.